All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 436. Jason Lingren is with me and Fortune de Saint Germain. One of the members was searching Fortune and they found his book, which is now available digital and printed. And we'll put links down in the comments. Uh, Jason got a little bit of food poisoning. His voice is a bit gruff. So either he won't talk much or we'll try to do a cutover if he does. Welcome, Jason. Man, a stormy good morning. It's not too bad. You're a little gruff, but it'll work. I don't think we have to overcut it. Welcome, Fortune. Hello again, everyone. Hello, dear listeners. Hello, dear friends. All right. Let me set the stage here. We've done a number of shows on natural childbirth. We've done a number of shows on folks who want to teach their own young because they've had it up to their eyeballs with the public school system. As I was talking with Fortune, he kept telling me about the education system in this country pre just roughly 1930. And he sent me images of these high schools. He even mailed me some images. They're like cathedrals. Unbelievable what was put into these buildings and the level of education at that point, which got me thinking. So I asked Fortune, can we do an episode to lay down what it is we lost in education? What did we have pre-1930 when education was at a higher standard? And uh, maybe someone coming into junior high, had a much better education than people going out for their bachelor's degree do now. What was it we lost? So that was the premise. Basically, if you're homeschooling or you're educating your own, the idea here is to try to fill in some gaps about what a good education used to be. How did I do there, Fortune? Excellent as always. There is a quote that you wanted me to remind you of about your house and the White House. This will lead us in, which I will get to, as we go in in about two minutes, I will get to that quote, which that quote begins us with uh, our basic premise for today's lesson and discussion and lecture. The answers to all, all of our modern day problems can be found in the antiquities. This has all happened before and before and before. That is why we studied the antiquities, the wisdom of the ancients, upon which we relied, the republics of Rome and Greece. But sadly, the great uh, philosopher of the 1800s, Hegel, pointed out to us that history teaches us that man learns nothing from history. So the basics of our educational system were on the Greco-Roman ideal up until quite recently. And the Greeks believed that beauty was virtue and excellence. And that was their definition of beauty. And now let us go towards, uh, as we proceed, the history of what schooling and raising children was about. So here we go to a uh, startling fact, a harsh fact, but something that is true and many of us will take as comedy. School is a babysitting service for broke, lazy parents, friends. And up until the 1870s uh, and for all of the time before that in all countries everywhere, your children were your responsibility. What came out of you was your responsibility to raise and educate on your money. You had it, you keep it, you take it, you educate it. 
So uh, that was nothing new to anyone, and nobody thought otherwise. Uh, and if you wanted to educate your children in the ancient world, there were the Greek lyceums and gymnasiums. You could have your tutors, your private tutors, or you could educate them at home on your own like families are doing today. There were many, many methods of education because education was not considered a concern of government. Education was your responsibility as a parent. So when we think of education, education equals culture and it equals civilization and it equals a basically a common body of knowledge or what they say common knowledge. And therefore we go to Crow's comment what happened in your house was more important than what happened in the White House or the Emperor's Palace or the Athenian Senate. So we, we get into ancient Greece where they have the world's first democracy uh, or republic based upon the demos, meaning people. And in order to do that, you were supposed to be an educated citizen. You had to know certain things in order that the uh, system, the government, the government that you were a participant in should run a certain way, that you were an educated person, that you would know what you were voting for. You would have a body of background knowledge behind you that would make you virtuous. So therefore, when you went to the polls and you uh, were able to cast your ballot in the urn, based upon your virtue, you would make a correct decision in voting for the person who was going to run your city-state, the Athenian city-state, and, and the world around you. So it was in both enlightened self-interest and enlightened altruistic interest that this would run in a proper virtuous way so that all would benefit from that. And therefore, we have the Athenian Republic, which lasted about 200 years, and we have the Roman Republic, the glory days of which lasted 200 years, and it's actually 400 years under the Republic, but the first 200 were the golden years where things ran pretty well. And the Romans, uh, seeing themselves and having conquered Greece, knew that Greece was the intellectually superior civilization. So conquered Greece had conquered Rome. In order to be educated in Rome, you had to know Greek. Uh, you had to know the canon of Greek and Roman literature, rhetoric, speaking, so that when you went before people and you spoke, you didn't sound like someone in the streets. You had a educated accent. Your word choice was superior so that people would know here was an educated man, a man of virtue who could come up and make an argument based on great rhetoric. And that is where the classical education comes in, the individual education, the education that stressed the individual and his pursuit of the truth. And when that died with Rome and was kept barely alive uh, in the East by Constantinople, we went into the Renaissance, 1300 to 1600s, which means rebirth. And they leaned again on Greece and Rome because they knew 
they needed something to bring them out of the world of the dark ages. And they went back to the uh, Greco-Roman ideals, uh, the Judeo-Christian values, and that is where our canon of the classical or liberal education comes to birth. The 1700s, it's refined in the Age of Reason, which is also known as the Enlightenment. And then the Victorians perfect that, and they go all the way up until World War I. And uh, that is our very, very short and beautiful history of uh, the Greco-Roman ideal in terms of a classical education. So, Fortune, not too long ago, I was looking at a, uh, a study of a learned man who wrote a report in the 90s. And in the 90s, he claimed that the U.S. had fallen so far that they couldn't even talk about common literature, which was commonplace in Europe. That was the claim, that there was all this old literature, which was important, that mostly Americans were unaware of. And I think that's really what got me thinking about this. But Jason, I'm going to jump into the first question Jason submitted for this. And he asked, what were the main subjects of study prior to 1930? Okay. Uh, in the 30s, a high school education becomes compulsory. So as we are speaking, because we've moved on from them, uh, from those years, pre-World War One. Children had the uh, what was known as grammar school. What you know as elementary today was called grammar school because you were supposed to have learned all of your grammar by sixth grade. Most children dropped out between sixth and eighth grades, even though the high school system in the public schools was developing for free. Uh, the free public school system in many, many countries and only children whose parents had some money could let them go to high school, even though it was a free public high school, because you as a growing child had to go to work to help support the family. So only if your family had some money, they were merchants or wealthy, could they let you go to the free public high school. And like I said, most children dropped out between uh, the end of grammar school and middle school. So when we talk about what we are asking here is grammar school was grammar. You learned all of that so that by middle school or junior high school, you would concentrate on writing skills and light reading. So by the time you got into high school, those last four grades, you would be able to concentrate on reading literature and write about it in an adult way. And I know that everyone's going to laugh and find that strange because that's not what's happening today. And that high school education that you are getting in the big cities, especially New York City, Chicago, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, following on its tails, uh, Baltimore, Washington, those Northeastern schools, when you were graduated from those high schools before World War I, you were beyond a master's degree in today's world. So we get now to what was being taught. There was the classics department, which was Greek and Latin, and that had its own very specific department. There was the English department, which was mainly literature, and you read and wrote about it, and those lectures were very, very intense and skilled. The teachers teaching them came out of the normal schools, which was a two-year program. 
So when you finished high school, you went to two years of pedagogy or normal school, and then you came out and you had your teaching degree. And if you were good, they scooped you up and you had a beautiful career with hallowed halls, uh, high schools that were built to look like cathedrals with marble floors, chandeliers, stained glass windows, auditoriums with pipe organs. Uh, and teachers that all spoke like Catherine Hepburn because you were trained to speak in a mid-Atlantic or an English accent. So for many of us that listen to old movies from the 30s, you will hear slight English accents on the actors, many of them. Some of you may have been told by your parents and grandparents that they had teachers who spoke with the English accents like Catherine Hepburn slowly with a British accent and a hesitation in it because that was the uh, the educated accent that was taught to you, especially in the prep schools of New England, like the Kennedys, and then at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and the girls' schools. So Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were the seven boys' schools, University of Pennsylvania, Brown, uh, Dartmouth, and then there were the seven sisters of which were Bryn Mawr, uh, Columbia, let's see, the Columbia, there were girls' school to that was Barnard, there was Smith, Vassar, Wellesley, and, and Radcliffe. So this is where the girls went for their elite education. And when we say elite education, we stress that it was not for the elites. It was to give you the best that you could get. So these public schools that were developing, especially in the United States, that were part of a government system, as they're called government schools in Europe, they were designed to follow on the tails of the elite schools in New England that were for the upper echelon. So this was a chance when the high school system started in the very, very late 1800s for children of middle-class and poor families, because we said it was the free public school, to go and get a fantastic education by people who were very, very well-trained. Uh, and the standards were very, very high, especially in the high schools. So if you look at the English department, you would have found that to be the very largest department in these high schools. Then secondly, it was followed by the classics and history. Uh, so Latin and Greek, you had to take either Latin or Greek, and most of the students took Latin. Uh, and uh, those departments were made up uh, mostly by women. And then uh, it was very usual for the Greek teachers to be both male, and they were proficient in Latin and Greek. And then you had to take a foreign language, which was at that time usually German, and if it wasn't, if, if it had not been German, it would have been French. And then there were the other subjects that came in after that, uh, science, the sciences and, uh, math. Uh, and these schools usually had elocution departments where you had to stand before and recite for the board before you received your high school diploma. So you had to leave. Maybe you had been an Italian or a Jewish or an Irish child of middle-class extraction in New York City or Boston. But when you went into those schools, they wanted you leaving the high school, learning to speak with a proper accent, an educated accent, and 
these school systems as they started developing pre-World War One. I have to point out that most of the high schools were boys or girls. And what made the great Morris High School, which we will get back to soon, or which was the first co-ed high school uh, in New York City that opened in 1900, the first fully co-ed functioning high school in New York City uh, in the Deep South Bronx. And that was going to be the future of the New York City high school system. And as the New York City high school system was developed, that was copied all across the United States. So we'll come back to Morris High School as a shining light, the very, very first and the greatest example of what a government high school in an urban setting should be. And on top of that, uh, let me just remind people, this system of government schooling comes in between 1770 and 1780 in what in the united germany it's called the prussian system so even though uh the high schools were based on the lyceum the greek lycee uh lyceum which comes to be the french lycee and the gymnasium um in germany so the french lycee and the and the german gymnasium we see that the prussians instituted a free universal education and it was actually done to buy off the anarchists and the radical socialists of the time. So that was how the Prussians invented their, it was called German socialism. And therefore, when that was started, many of the other countries started the copying and the birth of government school systems. Uh, and even though it was government in those early years, it was still a great liberal classical education for the few decades that it really existed until it was started to be chipped away at and watered down. Next question, my friends. So I don't think people have any idea because I know I didn't just rattle off some of the high school names that they can do an image search for. These high schools look like cathedrals. Uh, it's mind boggling what we lost. Can you just give a handful of names people can do an image search for? Oh, Boys High School in Boys High School in Philadelphia, uh, Morris High School in the South Bronx, New York City, uh, Dewitt Clinton High School in Manhattan, the Wadley School for Girls also in Manhattan, uh, Erasmus High School, Brooklyn, New York. Boys and Girls High School, Brooklyn, New York. The Boston Latin Academy uh, in, in Boston. And just to point out, since Morris was a co-ed high school, and it was all stone, stone mason handwork, and I uh, did teach there in the 70s for a very short time. Uh, and at that time, Morris had totally tanked. So Morris was the Titanic sitting at the bottom of the ocean at that time. It is a landmark building. Colin Powell was graduated from there in the early 50s, at which point uh, that had been a heavily Jewish high school. Before World War I, it was mainly Anglo and wealthy Irish because the high school at that time was built in the South Bronx because that's where the country was. The South Bronx in the late 18 and, and very late 1800s had a lot of land. There were old homes up there. 
and that is where the rich patrician Irish and Anglo families lived. So you can imagine that one of Crow's great stories is about Dr. Goodwin, who was the first principal. He came from Newton, Massachusetts, and I think he had studied at Yale. And he had come in one day when the uh, faculty of the classics department was holding their after-school meeting, and Dr. Goodwin walked into the room, and the 20 of them stood up, as the students at that time would stand up for the teacher when he entered the room. And he sat down in the back of the room and he said, I bid you sit down and go on with your meeting. And Mr. Pine, who was the head of the classics department, everyone else taught Latin. Mr. Pine had taught uh, Greek and Latin. And he said, let us proceed with this meeting in English because uh, Dr. Goodwin is here. And uh, I know he would like to follow the minutes of our meeting as uh, we are discussing the curriculum. And uh, he says, no, 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 proceed with the meeting uh, in Latin. I have had many years of Latin at Yale, and I would like you to proceed in Latin because I would love to hear Latin spoken as a living language. These are huge ideas, and I'm not sure if people in this day and age put together why it is. And I will just make a simple statement that on the face of it is true. Anytime anything gets translated, some of the intent and meaning gets lost. In the language a thing was written, there may be words that don't have a good counterpart to come into English. And what we find, um, there's early primer books. People have sent them to me from the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think it's just above grade school. If I remember, it's seventh grade. It's a primer book where someone reads the classic in Latin or Greek and then rolls it over and translates it into English. And this is a big deal because... Most of the people who did the classics read the classics in the language they were written, or at least they tried to suffice. Now, the next question, Fortune, you've kind of covered, but I'm going to reiterate it just to make the point. Jason asked, pre-1800, was school a government idea or was it on the family? Before the Prussian system is invented and uh, put into system in the United Germany, school was always outside of government. And it was not politicized. That was one of the things Socrates was complaining about when they put him to death, that education was becoming politicized. So when Socrates told you that they were losing the Athenian democracy and the generation was going, this generation was the worst and had gone to the dogs, what he was telling you was true. So we have our cycles in history. And Socrates was put to death because it was more convenient to overlook what he was saying and get him out of the way, as we do with our prophets in all religion. Uh, so everyone could just go on with business and the party, wine, women, and song. And that is what the general Pericles, who knew Socrates very well, said. The Greek golden age is called the age of Pericles. Uh, he said, Greece lost its golden age because the people gave up virtue and chased gold. Basically, wine, women, and song, which is what happened to Rome. As Rome went into the days of the empire under Augustus, uh, Augustus knew that they were going into a new age. And even though he had proclaimed himself emperor, he said, let us not lose the virtues that made us as Romans great. 
meaning the Greco-Roman ideal, the things of education, uh, virtue, the Vestal Virgins, the Roman ideal of learning, and also the Roman ideal of family and family virtues. So that is what uh, Augustus had greatly stressed as they were going into the first days of the empire that he had created. So as we go along during the Renaissance, when we get the great reawakening and we start to teach the Greco-Roman ideals again, and they become available outside of the monasteries, it is the great awakening of virtue, of beauty again, of excellence. And this was all done in the family. You had to do it for your family and your children, whether you sent them to a school uh, or you did it at home by tutors or you did it on your own. Because if you were an upper class family, you were supposed to have all of this under your belt as a gentleman, which that is what was being formulated in the Renaissance 1300 to 1600. It starts in Italy and it ends in England. And that's what brings us the great Elizabethan age under Queen Elizabeth and the Shakespearean dramas, the great theater, which starts leading to the great age of literature. So everywhere in Europe that that went, these countries experienced a new golden age and the Renaissance stops at the borders of uh, Orthodox Russia. So the Catholic countries surrounding Russia had the Renaissance, and the Renaissance never made it into Orthodox Russia. So they never had the awakening ideals, and that is why they were so backward in terms of uh, agrarian culture and authoritarianism. Uh, so as we go on up until uh, the Prussian era, as we said again, 1870 to 1880, school is the responsibility of the home. And as the Prussians instituted it, it was mildly politicized. So it did not, it, it was very, very slightly politicized. And wanting to have an educated populace only benefits every government of its time. So we're talking about the Victorian era of uh, the uh, 1800s. And it was considered in the best interests of the society that its citizens or subjects, because many of these countries had monarchs, so you were not a citizen, you were a subject, and that they wanted their subjects to be educated, even though they were middle class and were going to a government school. It was in enlightened self-interest and sometimes altruistic interests or altruism that the populace be a learned and educated populace. All right, I'm going to draw a line based on the third bullet point of one of the things that Jason brought up. Many people here have been reading Steiner. Have you ever noticed that the Steiner that is closer to 1900 keeps referring to this darkness that is growing and this bad thing that might happen? The people who later went back and did schools and all this stuff in Steiner's world said this, if Steiner was alive today, what World War II did to the world is many times worse than what 9-11 did to the world. That's the claim they're making. So what Jason submitted was this, was there a gradual change of curriculum over the years, or was there a very noticeable line drawn 
when things changed. And I think you can see why I'm bringing up World War I to see where it fits in when education begins to take a fall in this country. With each succeeding world war, education became more and more politicalized. And then as it went from German socialism in, under Bismarck and the Kaiser to national socialism in Germany, which means Nazi in the street slang. So education became more and more politicized until the Nazis weaponized education. And then that became an example for the rest of the world of what could be done. But let us stress up until World War I, these were the Greco-Roman ideals and the high Victorian society. It stressed a good, quiet home life based upon classical and religious ideals. So going to high school and then to university, the pursuit of learning in the university was the truth. So it was about the individual. It was for you to get a great education so you would have the canon behind you. You would have knowledge behind you to discover the truth on your own. And that was the way it basically was up until World War I. So that World War I ended the Victorian and Edwardian era. Three emperors were knocked off the throne, uh, Germany, Austria, and Russia. One country becomes communist. And if you want to talk about weaponized, politicized, weaponized education, uh, the communists were actually the first to do that one. Uh, and then the Germans followed when they took that over. But even though World War I happened, uh, it was a slow chug uh, through the 20th century. And oh, as the decades went on, the curriculum became more and more watered down and things that were of the great virtuous education had been removed. Now, there are two books you can read that are modern books from the 80s. One is called The Closing of the American Mind by Howard Bloom, and that was a runaway bestseller. And there's another one, Cultural Literacy, by a man called E.D. Hirsch. That was another bestseller. And they will talk to you in great depth about what has been lost and what education was really about. And then if we go to pre-World War I, we go to McGuffey's Reader. And McGuffey was a pastor who wrote a beautiful, beautiful book for students called McGuffey's Reader. And it was a primer of reading. And people say that that was the most well-read generation, the best and literate generation. And many people attribute it to McGuffey's Reader. And that book was still in use in many places in the South and Midwest up through the 20s. So those of you, you can order the book. It still can be ordered. Post-World War II, there was a great English book used in the New York City public school system called Tressler's English. And that was by Mr. Tressler of Richmond Hill High School in Queens. And many of these great teachers will talk about one of Crow's favorite teachers who he heard through me was Doc Guernsey of DeWitt Clinton High School, 1914 to 1959. The great Mr. Teats of Far Rockaway High School in Queens, New York. Another history teacher, the only teacher in New York City 
that has a plaque to his memory in room 215 where he taught perpetually for decades upon decades. The great Doc Chickering, Jamaica High School, 47 years. So after World War I, the Latin and classics departments chug along. They do very, very well, and they are removed in the early 30s when a compulsory education becomes compulsory education, meaning compulsory is supposed to finish high school. Now, many of those students never did finish high school because they had to drop out because of the Depression. But up through the early 30s, every New York City high school had its uh, classics department. And some like Jamaica High School, um, if you want to see a beautiful building, take a look at Jamaica High School in Queens, New York. Uh, it has its own campus, a hill and a lake on it. And that classics department went on. They went on teaching Latin and Greek there through Doc Chickering and his wife because that school was so scholastically superior. Erasmus High School in Brooklyn, another high school that kept its classics department into the 50s, where these schools were no It wasn't mandatory, but the classics department kept on where you could take Latin or Greek if you wanted to. And you look at these schools, Boys and Girls High School in Brooklyn, which was like a private finishing school. So if you went to, and they were right next to each other, Girls High School was its own high school on one block, and the next city block was Boys High School. It was in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and they taught manners and polished speech even into the 30s and even into World War II. But all of that comes to an end with World War II. And you get into the 50s educational system, which is basically massive. But you still could go and get a fantastic education in these places as the school systems were developing in the suburbs. And we, we look till about the early 60s, early to mid-60s. And that was when great high schools like Erasmus and Morris High School totally tanked. So that by 1970, 72, you look at the yearbooks of these great, great high schools, uh, especially Morris, and these places look like Bedlam. That's an insane asylum in England. Uh, when you say all hell is broken loose, you say it looks like Bedlam. It, these schools looked like the Wild West. There was no semblance of anything that they had been anymore. So let's give an example. You've mentioned how education became politicized and everyone listening to this that went through modern education has been politicized. And I'll give the example. Why is it that in the education that we receive in the United States from roughly seventh grade up to about 10th grade, the reading that we're expected to read consists of things like 1984, Lord of the Flies, Brave New World, Animal Farm, and what is the common thread through each one of those prescribed books? It's what's happening to us now in the world. How can that be? That is the, politi the, the politicalization of what's being taught. And that brings me up. Well, I want to mention one more thing. People often ask, well, what can I teach my child? What are the good books to have? I always recommend the Trivium and Quadrivium. And if you want to know more about those, you should contact Mark Passio of all the people I've met in the modern era. He's very well versed in these. And by the way, all the versions of the quadrivium and the trivium I have seen feel abridged to me. But fortune, this brings me to my question to you. 
what would be the actual books that we can still get our hands on that would have been part of the curriculum? Would it have been Dante's Inferno? You see where I'm going here. Um, of course, I'm guessing myth, both Greek and Roman would have been part of things. But can you lay down some reading that back in the day when education was significantly higher than it is now, what would some of that prescribed reading have been? Well, if you really want to know those, Closing of the American Mind will teach you mostly what was in the uh, university systems education and cultural literacy will give you a big overall teaching and mention many books of what was also in the high school education. McGuffey's Reader, Tressler's English. Um, I don't know if you can get Tressler's English, uh, but the canon that was developed was to make you as a citizen, uh, an educated individual, uh, to give you exposure to these ideas in universe, in high school. And then if you went to university, uh, which was originally for Dr. Loy, a professor and the um, gentleman, so they could either go into the gentleman's professions, meaning Dr. Loy or professor, and just educated gentlemen, if you were the landed gentry or upper class, so you would get a great education. Crow loves the grand tour because you would go to Europe and see the sights and spend a year or six months, a year, sometimes two, touring Europe, speaking to princes and professors, taking your courses, perfecting your Latin and Greek and the uh, foreign language that you had uh, studied in school. So this went on the 1700s to the mid 1800s. And then the Americans kept it alive through the early uh, 1900s. So the better families of the industrialists and the uh, Mrs. Astor's 400 mainline in Philadelphia, the Boston Brahmins, uh, they wanted their children to be educated. And in the European tradition, So as we were leaving the Civil War, we found ourselves on the doorstep of uh, Europe as a backwater, and the families that were up and coming through money and and solidified their pedigree. Mansion building on Fifth Avenue of the rich developed New York manners, culture, art, education, and we leaned on England and France secondly. So as we are coming out of the Renaissance, we must remember the napkin comes about in the Renaissance because before then you just wiped your hand on your sleeve. Manners come about in the Renaissance, not to make sounds while you are eating because if in those years you belched or you wanted to make sounds, you just let them out. But the Renaissance changed all that. The word modern comes about in the Renaissance. So uh, when you read these books that I'm giving you, um, McGuffey's Reader for the Children, Tressler's English, and then you have to go back to the old canon. 1984 is a warning because George Orwell, whose name was Eric Blair, saw the playbook of the future. That is a great piece of literature. It is, it is a tragic piece of literature, but is, it is a warning. Pre-World War I, we go to great writers like Dickens, where we are, have long flowing sentences with beautiful adjectives. And you, you sat and you read because there was no radio and there was no television and there were no movies. 
So you read and then you went to dinner parties because when the lights went, you know, the sun went down, you had to light the candles. And depending on your wealth status, uh, you could uh, afford more candles the richer you were. So you had to make your own more entertainments. You had to be a conversationalist. You Women had to know how to play an instrument, know how to carry a tune, and know how to dance. So that was middle and upper class. And then you would draw your evening out, cocktails at seven, which would mean you'd sit talking about literature. People would talk about the news of the day and then dinner at eight or supper, as it was called in Europe. And that would be stretched out over two hours. That would end by eight to 10 in the more elegant families. And then 10 would be men into one room, women into another. Men, cards and brandy, women uh, with uh, cards and music in their room, and sometimes general entertainments. And it was a better world for a middle-class person because you were able to afford on a husband's salary your own home in the city, your own townhouse as a middle-class or upper-middle-class person, and three servants, nanny, who often was tutor, cook, and maid. And then if you were upper middle class, you got chauffeur or livery boy, and then more and more servants as it went on. And if you would like to see something about that age, you could watch The Gilded Age, which has just come out on HBO, and that brings things to life. And I don't want to hear from the listeners that's only for the rich, because as we must face that school is a babysitting service for broke, lazy parents, we must also face the truth that it stinks to be poor in any age, and it's great to be rich in any age. And in any age, our greatest obligation to the poor is not to become one of them. Next question. (laughs) All right. I'm going to lay down a couple things. You laid down some books. I actually got two or three of the books Fortune mentioned. But I will point out that even before the great fall in education that we're talking about here, up to about the 1930s. Before that, there were times when civilizations considered that their language was being lost. It is claimed that Dante's Inferno, part of the reason why it was written, was to preserve the complexity and the scope of the language. It is claimed that the Canterbury Tales did the same in British climes. It is claimed that Don Quixote did the same in that language. You should be aware there's a thing called the wooden books that you can look into, particularly for very young students. And then I just want to get your take on the myths. I always say everyone should know myths. And the reason I say this is because I can't tell you how often I'm reading something that's older and someone goes ahead and trots out the name of a Greek mythical character or the story that it came from. And I can't understand the metaphor because I don't know the mythical story. So I have to put it down, go look up the the character, the god or goddess or whatever you want to call them, figure out what the lesson of the myth that they're referring to is to get the metaphor. And this was commonplace for people to make a quip about the sun god or something else, because everybody pretty much who was educated comprehended myth at some level. So how big a deal is myth? in those days? Did everybody know the supposed family trees of the gods, or was it more that they just had the basic overarching myth narratives under their belts? Okay. Classical education 
based on the Greco-Roman idea, we say there are three things we have to know. Actually, in ancient Egypt, it was as within, so without. Your outer world will be a reflection of who you are inside, which is basically a spiritual salvo. What your heart, what is in your heart, the vibration of your consciousness, your outside world, will be determined by that. So if your inside world, inside your heart and mind is chaos, that's what your outside world will be like. The Greeks know thyself. Dignity of bearing, grace under pressure. Uh, and then the Christian, Judeo-Christian ideal, as above, so below. As in heaven, so shall it be on earth. To understand this better, Joseph Campbell and his power of myth. And for those of you that would like to watch it, it was the most popular PBS special ever. Professor Campbell taught at Sarah Lawrence College, and he wrote some beautiful books, Occidental Mythology and uh, Oriental Mythology. His power of myth is very easy reading. He was a great, great teacher, and he was the greatest authority on religion in the 20th century, showing the commonality of themes. Now, myths, everyone borrows from everyone. They are great stories. They are metaphor for life. So we do Perseus slaying the Gorgon, the Medusa. The problem looks too, but too, the, the problem looks so large that if we look at the Medusa, the Colossus, the Goliath, we turn to stone. We become petrified when we look at it. So the problem is too large in our eyes. We have to look in the shield to see it from a different perspective to tackle the problem. So go to Edith Hamilton and her books. She was made an honorary citizen of Greece at the age of 90, and a citizen of Athens in the early 60s. Uh, she was flown to Athens by King Paul of Greece, and she had dedicated, she was a teacher at Bryn Mawr School for Girls. She was conversant both in Greek and Latin, specializing mainly in Greek. She wrote The Echo of Greece, The Echo of Rome, The Greek Way, The Roman Way based upon the works of Professor Basil Gildersleeve, the greatest classic scholar the United States has ever had. So you can go to her works. They were bestsellers and they were light reading. And here's another one Crow will love. She went to Greece to become made a citizen of Athens, and the king was there to award her her honorary citizenship. And the greatest scholars and nobility had filled that amphitheater in Athens. And Edith Hamilton gave a 45-minute speech to the people of, uh, of, of Athens and Greece that was carried throughout all of Europe, but particularly in Greece. She spoke to those assembled in classical Greek. And then at the end of her speech, which is bringing tears to my eyes, she started crying. And she says, I am an Athenian. I am a citizen of Athens. And the king stood up. And here was this beautiful 90-year-old woman dressed in Greek garb from the ancient times and gave her her medal and her sash to show that she was an honorary. Uh, she had been made a citizen of Athens, the first citizen of the Republic in over 2,000 years. All right. In a moment, I'm going to see if Jason's voice is up to jumping in, but I'm going to make a point here. 
Our education has tanked beyond what's imaginable. When you look back at the periods of time, even with what a grammar school life was walking away with compared to what someone going into college is walking away with now. And I'll ask a simple question. Most people that listen to what we do here are aware of what NASA does for a living. They make stuff up. They put your mind in a fantasy state. But let me ask you a question. Why did they call the first foray out in disposed after outer space Mercury? Why did they call the supposed moonshots Apollo? Why have they switched over now to Apollo's twin sister and they're calling it Artemis? And by the way, who is Artemis in the Roman telling? That would be Diana. These are all the things that we no longer learn. And when these insults to intelligence are trotted out in front of the masses and nobody catches on, this can be directly relatable to the education we didn't get, or maybe I should say a little more concisely, the education we did not give to ourselves. Jason, how's the voice? Do you want to jump in or do you want me to carry on? Well, we're just about at the top of the hour, but I would like to know when you say the classics, what all does that encompass? Does that just mean the myths or what else is there? Greco-Roman ideal. And then we can go, as we have said to Don Quixote de la Mancha, that not long ago, everybody would know that the first line of the book they would know it by heart in Spanish and English in this place of La Mancha, en un lugar de La Mancha. So the minute you say La Mancha, you should automatically know Don Quixote, the great epic. Dante's Inferno was part of a trilogy, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And these writers, it is true, wrote and they tried to codify and modernize by their literature the languages in which they wrote. Goethe, what, these are lines that everybody used to know at one time. Call me Ishmael, the first line of Moby Dick. These were famous first lines, which it was considered standard to know. My horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse. Shakespeare's Richard. And just the, the lines go on and on. And this is what we have lost, my friends. But Paradise Lost by Milton can in any moment be for you paradise gained. And even though we no longer respect education, we can bring back the luster. So what happens in your library? Today, you have the internet, which is, if used properly, stronger than the great library of Alexandria. First, you have to know what you're looking for, because if you don't know it exists, you can't look for it. And you can't find what you're not looking for. So today we tell you about what does exist, uh, what they could never take away from us. And then you have to know where to look for it. So you can go on the net in your home today and you can turn your beautiful, your little home, no matter how small it is, into a beautiful house of joy and learning. And that's what your homes were supposed to be. There is more to life than sitting eating cornflakes in your underwear, looking at Pornhub and listening to YouTube. And that I say to the young, oh, and don't forget texting everyone while you're doing. Okay, we're at the top of the first hour here. I, I want to make a point that people can verify. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm not the dimmest guy in the room. And I read a lot. And some years ago, I picked up a book by James Fenimore Cooper 
because my sister had read it. My father had read it. I heard them talking about it. And guess what? I was the uneducated one. And it was such a popular title long before the movie from Hollywood came out. So I went and I grabbed it. And instantly I was smacked in the face. I'm having trouble dealing with this language and it's English, I said to myself. And then I dug in my heels and I said, I'll do what I always do. I will keep reading till I lock my mind and click it over. It's like listening to a difficult accent. If you stick with it, you can click your mind over. But I struggled and struggled about halfway through the book before I finally found my groove. That book's in English. How could it be an adult in the United States that I picked up a book and I struggled with the language? These are the things. And education is a big part of what's going on in our world and why, basically, those who want to do things are getting away with it. Oh, I believe we went to the moon, but I don't know the first thing about Greek myth. I have no idea why they're naming those things the way they're naming them, but we have endeavored to show you. Again, three episodes ago, a follower searched and found a book that's fortunate had written a long time ago. Uh, it was so long ago, fortunate forgotten about it. Now, the links were updated. That will be in the top comment. I think it's digitally available now or as a hard copy, and it's a very meaningful, easy read. That's it for hour one of episode 436 with Jason Lindgren and Fortune to St. Germain covering education, a thing that we have mostly lost. But the good news is everyone can do what I did. I educated myself in this world. And a big part of what I did was through books. And another big part of what I did was looking for what I wanted to know because I knew it existed. There it is. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy and higher minded new era. And membership can come back for the full episode over at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. Come.